Hello, I'm Dr. Louise Newson, and welcome to my podcast. I'm a GP and menopause specialist, and I run the Newson Health Menopause and Wellbeing Centre here in Stratford-upon-Avon. I'm also the founder of the Menopause Charity and the Menopause Support App called Balance. On the podcast, I will be joined each week by an exciting guest to help provide evidence-based information and advice about both the perimenopause and the menopause. So today on this podcast, I have with me Lucy Chatwin, who I met several months ago. And initially, she was going to come and work in the clinic. And now she's actually working alongside me, but not in the clinic. And we'll explain why in a minute. Um, So welcome, Lucy, to the podcast. Thank you. So Lucy can explain a bit more. But basically, I was looking for someone to help try and expand the clinic a while ago as we were getting busier. And her name was passed around. And then I picked up the phone and we already had an operations director by this stage and I wasn't really sure what we needed and I picked up the phone and within two seconds I thought I really need Lucy but I don't know how I don't know what role she's going to do but Lucy's got a huge amount of experience in the NHS she's very interested in women's health and so she's now working very closely with me on my not-for-profit company Newson House Research and Education which I set up just over two years ago and what it does is what the title says actually it's about research and education in menopause and perimenopause. So before we talk too much about that Lucy can you just explain a bit about who you're because you're not a medical doctor although you obviously know a lot about different aspects of medicine but can you just explain a bit about your background is that okay? Sure yes so I kind of tripped into health more than anything I started my career in lean manufacturing so I left university with a degree in environmental management and went into a consultancy business as you do because I didn't really know what I wanted to do at the age of 20 having left university with a qualification that made me go, oh, how am I going to use this then? So I stumbled into a role where I became an office manager for a lean manufacturing consultancy. And what they did were they were predominantly ex-Toyota workers that looked at how to take waste out of processes. And they travelled the world, essentially, sharing their knowledge and their skills. And I suppose what that role gave me was an insight into operations and how I could really make a difference to the people side of the business. So I took time out of that role to do a master's in human resources and management at Aston. And that kind of led me into the HR world, which is where I then ended up in my first role at the Dudley Group of Hospitals. And that was my first sort of entrance into the health world which was fantastic really because I think I spent six months building a glossary of terms of all of the acronyms that are used within health I think because so many people just talk in acronyms the whole time and it was really interesting not having a health background and then trying to decipher what it was Mm. that everybody was saying so I had a, a varied role at the hospital, so I did HR and then moved into service improvement and became the head of transformation there. And that's where I really got a broad understanding of how health works, but also the system and the wider system. Mm. And then that led me to the West Midlands Academic Health Science Network, which was one of 15 AHSNs, again, another lovely acronym that we can use that says, how do we support the adoption of innovation into the NHS in order to improve outcomes? And that's health outcomes. 
and population health. And really, that was where the last seven years I've been working. And it was fascinating, really, because I'd have a lot of interactions with industry, with academia, with other hospitals. And on reflection, not a lot of it was focused on women's health. A few was, but really not a lot. Why do you think that was, Lucy? I think it's because there isn't really that much money in women's health. And I think if you looked at the areas where there was focus, it was maternity. And other than that, it was really quite limited. And I would ask the question to pharma companies and say, you know, where's, where are the innovations in women's health? And they'd go, oh, well, it doesn't really make us that much money, so it's not of interest. And I think as women as well, we don't necessarily complain. We just get on with it, don't we? <laughs> mm. It's interesting, actually, this pharma side. Let's just spend a bit of time, if you don't mind, talking about that, because there's a lot of areas in medicine where things that move forward very quickly. So mm-hmm. if you think about cardiology and statins, for yep. example, when I was a house officer, you didn't really have many statins, and now we've got big choice. They're given a lot. GPs get paid to prescribe them. There is good evidence for secondary prevention. So if someone's had a heart attack, then they can be very beneficial. The jury is actually still out for primary prevention. And actually, for primary prevention in women, so primary prevention means to stop or reduce the risk of a heart attack in someone who's never had a heart attack. There's a lot of the studies being done on men, not women. So we haven't got really, really good evidence. (laughs) Isn't that weird that it reduces the risk of a heart attack in women, yet as GPs they're paid to prescribe statins but the statins make a lot of money for drug companies and there's a lot of research that's been funded by pharma and that's the same in some other areas of medicine as well isn't it when there's money from pharma that fuels research therefore that gets translated quite quickly into clinical practice doesn't it Absolutely. And I read the the book Invisible Women and was shocked to learn that it wasn't until, was it 1993, when it was illegal for research not to include women? And I think that was astounding for me to kind of go, really? So how then have all these medicines been developed without female bodies or hormones, obviously, that we have been part of that and the impact that that has on the studies that they undertake? It's incredible, isn't it? So I was talking, I met an old, well, as old as me, so relatively old, university friend last weekend. And there's a company called Medivan in Manchester, I don't know if it's still there, where you could do experiments. And so as students, obviously, you're desperate to do anything. And so he used to do quite a lot because he could do residential ones. So he was studying philosophy. He wasn't studying medicine. So he had quite a lot of spare time. So he used to go and he used to get paid several hundred pounds. We were all really jealous of John because he could go and spend this time. And they wanted young men for this research. The only research I could do as a woman was to donate my plasma, so give blood. Mm-hmm. And if I gave it caffeine-free, I would get £15. If I gave it with caffeine, so if I'd been drinking coffee, it was £10. And I would still do it because I thought, oh, 10 £15 is better than nothing. That was the only trial. I could not get on any other trials at all. And at the time, I thought, oh, it's because they're worried that I could be pregnant, which is obviously the excuse that they always give. And they don't want to give you drugs or whatever, do experiments on you because you're female and you could uh, become pregnant that would be really bad but actually looking back that's outrageous it's yeah. absolutely outrageous yeah. that we went to a lot of the drugs when they were never going to be teratogenics they weren't going to ever affect an unborn embryo but actually why is it that all the research all the studies are done in men and we know that 
hormones are so powerful, aren't they? So estrogen and testosterone in women affect the way our cells work and our bodies work and the, the function of our, every single organ in our body. Yet that's never accounted for, is it? No, and I count myself quite lucky because I think, you know, I've sailed fairly smoothly through my sort of puberty and, and into adulthood and then I don't think it was until I had a child afterwards that for probably 12 months after having my first son that you go, wow, I didn't realise how powerful hormones were mm. in how you feel and your mood and your memory and all of these things. And, you know, we talk about baby brain. And again, it's made a joke of, but we don't really understand then what underlies that and therefore, okay, what do I need to understand? Mm. And And again, from a research point of view, how is that investigated or looked into? Because all you get is a, well, all I had was a photocopy of a, almost like a depression score afterwards to go whether I had baby blues or not. And then that was it. No explanation, no discussion, nothing more than that, really. It's quite something, and, and this is really embarrassing, actually. I only recently put the pieces together and realised that the reason that I was getting night sweats when I was breastfeeding was because I had low oestrogen levels. I thought it was just because of breastfeeding. I didn't, even as a doctor, didn't really put two and two together. And then you think, like you say, baby blues, postnatal depression. Well, of course, a lot of it's hormonal. But how many of us get given hormones? And then it was only actually a few years ago we were allowed to prescribe the contraceptive pill to people who were still breastfeeding because we had to wait before until three months because there was a possible risk of clot. But actually, why aren't we giving HRT to some of these people? Why aren't we trying to improve their brain fog? You know, lots of women go back to work quite soon after yeah. having a baby. I don't know, you know, I didn't have my medical writing. I never had a maternity leave. I needed my brain. Yeah. And when you haven't got sleep, of course, that's going to affect the way you think. But then if you haven't got your hormones either, or you've had a big change in your hormones. And, and so, you know, we talk obviously all about the menopause and how poor research is into menopause. But let's look at PMS. Let's look at postnatal depression. So these are still hormonal influences. And there's very little work done on these, is there? Yeah, and I think they're kind of put into different buckets. And I think what I've found coming into this role is how you know, siloed the medical profession can be in that it thinks about its own condition and the impacts of that. And you kind of get a bit blindsided because all you're focused on is that element without really necessarily opening your mind up to what else it could be. And certainly mm -hmm. with hormones. And, you know, I still remember our first call where you said, you know, the impact that it has on cardiovascular disease, diabetes, dementia, osteoporosis. And that really took me by surprise how many different areas that were impacted and then you go so you start to join the dots and I think in my previous role when you build a network of professionals you join the dots more because you have these conversations and that that for me is where innovation and the excitement starts to happen because as you say it's more like a light bulb moment happens and you go oh I never even thought about that yeah. how did that come about so you know, from your perspective, how do you think we start to have more of those light bulb moments, really? Well, I think I'm naive. I think they're starting to happen, but it's very interesting because when you started, I started to go on and on about you because we were in the middle of this pandemic and yeah. I kept talking to you about the role of estrogen mm -hmm. with respect to immunity because we know it affects our immune function. We know women have better immune function than men when they've got hormones on board. And I said to Lucy, it's really important, actually, because we have got some studies from 17 countries showing that women who take HRT 
are less likely to die from COVID. And so in my crazy way, I reach out to a lot of people all the time. And I it used to think maybe one in 20 people respond. I now think one in 100 do because I fire off a lot of things, a lot of ideas, and very few people respond. And I think because they see the word menopause and they mm. think, well, she's a menopausal crazy woman, which obviously I am, but they think the menopause is hot flushes. That's yeah. where they stop thinking. And so since that, you've joined me on lots of calls about this to eminent research groups, to immunologists, to yep. all sorts of researchers, physiologists, pharmacologists, all sorts of people. And then the whole long COVID thing. We've also been looking, thinking, well, a lot of the symptoms of long COVID are the same as the symptoms of the perimenopause and menopause. So what's differentiating them? We don't have a special test. So we need to be asking people with long COVID, could it be your hormones? Because then we can help so the hormonal elements. So you've been, again, on lots of calls with that. And I don't know, how many research teams have we reached out to? So I have diligently been keeping a list of everyone that you reach out to. Maybe not that diligently because I'm sure I've missed a few, but there are over 80 different groups that we've been reaching out to globally as well. And I think that's the key thing to say, you know, we've had conversations with teams in Brazil, in America, in Australia, in India and and I think all of them still are surprised by how much we're championing the effects of hormones into mm. different areas of the body because yes. it isn't really on their radar yet, is it? No. So we've had over 80 groups just with COVID and non-COVID and the majority, I would say, have been with men, yeah, do you think? definitely. It has been. And I think that's where it's very difficult because there's no real lived experience of the impact of hormones. I mean, I, I appreciate that men do have hormones and <laughs> and they but I will... think they haven't thought about it, have they? No. And I realise how hard it is to make a change anyway, but how hard it is to tell people something they've never thought of before. Mm. You know, for me, it's so obvious, but for other people, it takes a while and it's often two, three, four, five and more conversations until yeah. maybe the penny drops. But I think it's interesting because traditionally... The menopause has always been a gynecological specialty. So when you have your training, if you do have any training as a doctor, then it's a gynecologist. And I've been thinking a lot about this recently and thinking if I was a gynecologist, which I'm not, as you know, I would be interested in surgery and techniques. I would be interested in obstetrics because they usually go together. So obviously we know all about babies and maternity care but the gyne bit is more about investigating women who have pain have bleeding have endometriosis have different types of cancers really interesting form of medicine and a lot of it is surgery based so then if I think about the menopause that's when our periods stop and we experience symptoms and health risks well why would I go and see a gynecologist if I had an underactive thyroid gland, would I see a neck surgeon who operates on thyroid glands? I don't think I would. No. And given that the symptoms aren't localised to that no, area No, in fact, either. you don't. Normally, sometimes people get some heavy periods, of course. Yeah. But a lot of people don't get any gynae symptoms. Your ovaries shrivel up. Yeah. <laughs> Your womb doesn't do anything. And so it does seem a bit crazy, actually. And I also think... There's huge demands on anything in secondary care at the moment because of COVID. There's a massive backlog. And also it's a lot more expensive, isn't it, for the NHS to see someone in a hospital? Absolutely. Secondary care referrals is the 
bit that they want to avoid. And mm. and I think, you know, for me, this is kind of where the prevention piece and the self-diagnosis and the support that you can get through the Balance app to do some mm. of the self-diagnosis. And and I thought doing all of my reading around the perimenopause and the menopause before joining Newson Health, that it was psychosomatic because I was looking at all these things going oh, I've got joint aches, I've got fatigue, I've got this low-level anxiety. I just thought that was because of the COVID pandemic and other things. And it's not until you start joining up those different symptoms and my age, you know, I'm 44, I'm not at the nice guidance threshold of 45, but hey, you know, Mm -hmm. I could really relate to some of those symptoms. And it wasn't until this job that made me go, oh, it's the perimenopause and I'm actually a bit of a hormone sort of bore to my friends now because I keep saying do you think it could be a hormone do you think have you thought about this and they'll just look at me as if say oh she's not going to raise it again but then they're also fascinated because nobody's ever spoken to them about it before and it's very interesting isn't it because I think the menopause has just not been spoken about by women as you say but also by healthcare professionals so we don't think about it and a lot of you who are listening have heard me say before how sad and embarrassed I am that I've missed so many thousands probably, but certainly hundreds of women who have got barn door menopausal symptoms like joint pains, like urinary symptoms, headaches, low mood. And I've never once thought about the menopause. And so if it's not up there thinking about it, then it's very hard, isn't it, to pick yeah. it up and Certainly some of the work I'm doing and you're helping with NHS England is how do we get it on the agenda? How do we make it interesting for people? And at what stage do we try and screen for the menopause or ask people or ask clinicians to be involved? But I always think the first question should be when we see a woman is what are your periods like? Do you think any of your symptoms could be related to your hormones? Yeah, and one of the first projects that I was involved in over at Dudley was Think Glucose. So when people were admitted for diabetes, they even had their own sticker. Not that we want a great big sticker on ourselves that says we're menopausal or a different uniform, but at least something that makes you go, the question has been asked and we've yeah. thought about it. But it is think hormones I do, or think periods. You yeah. know, so many women, I mean, when I was at medical school, I was taught if a young woman didn't have periods, just make sure she's not pregnant. And if she's not, then don't worry about it. So therefore, I sort of grew up almost thinking, oh, well, young women don't really become menopausal. And so actually, yes, of course. But if we educate women, then we can ask them themselves, can't we? Yeah. And that's easier. I mean, it's harder because there's no test. But actually, it is really important. So with the not-for-profit, obviously, we talked about research. And it's not just COVID research. We're involved or we're getting involved, aren't we? Yeah. Quite a few different projects that are happening. Yes, I think, you know, looking at mental health, at sleep. There was even, I just saw today, a grant come out for urinary tract. So anything to do with Mm. urology, you know, before I wouldn't necessarily thought, you know, urology in the menopause. But now I'm going, oh, actually... Is there something there? Because HRT does fit within that innovation bracket Mm. because it hasn't been adopted. You know, if you think about what an innovation is, it's something that is used in one place but isn't used in others. Well, hormone replacement therapy with only 10% of women who are on HRT, actually, there's a huge opportunity for adoption Mm. of hormone replacement therapy. But yeah, the research is one piece, but then the education is the other piece and the confidence in the menopause course, how... That's now been accessed by 18,250 
healthcare professionals and over 20 different groups of healthcare professionals as well, because that's the other exciting piece is that we're opening up that accessibility for whether it's a practice nurse, whether it's a pharmacist, a physiotherapist, you know, anybody can access it in any country as well to kind of go, oh, okay, I'm going to be seeing women you know, and actually, yes, I can now ask them about their periods and then understand what options are available to them and have a really informed discussion, which is what the education piece is there for. But equally, it's about listening and getting the feedback from others to say, well, how does it impact you in cardiology then? You know, you see women with heart palpitations. What information do you need to know about? And how can we turn that into some practical tools and support? Because I think We are very solution focused in thinking about, you know, this isn't just a one way push of information. It's about understanding where there are still gaps in our knowledge that can then feed research. We can do the research, which then feeds the education. So for me, it's that cycle effect. And, you know, back to my early days of plan, do, check, act with lean manufacturing. That's what it was about. It was always making sure from a continuous improvement point of view We are thinking about what we don't know and how we fill that gap, essentially. Yeah, and it's been absolutely amazing having you working with us and looking at the education programme because the NICE, the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence Guidance, came out in November 2015, so that's six years ago now, whereas you've already said 10% of women take HRT, whereas the NICE guidance, when they came out, and they're still standing because of the evidence that the majority of women benefit from HRT, So actually, the guidelines are only as good as the dissemination. It's not about what's in them. It's not about the paper that they're printed on. It's about not only reading them, it's about doing it. And this is a big problem with any guideline, isn't it? It's only as good as the people who use them actively. So when we developed the education programme, I developed it where we've uh, videoed uh, consultations, we've got lectures, it's all evidence-based, But I wanted a really good platform for it because I thought there's no point me just hiding it on my website and letting the odd doctor become involved. So as you know, we're working with 14 Fish, a great platform that they've got. But when you started with us, we wanted to start pushing it out and really optimising it. And we were going to make it just a low cost. And then we decided, didn't we? Yep. To make it free. Was that the royal we decided? Yes, I think so. (laughs) Yeah. But I think you could understand my logic in doing it. And one of the reasons was because I'm so appalled and disgusted and upset the way that women are turned away from treatment. I thought it would just help. And the money is only one thing, really. And we want more money or we want some money into the not-for-profit so we can fund some research. But we're hoping that this will come. But the most important thing is for women to get help. We've got good research to show how safe HRT is. So disseminating this programme is, is has been really important, hasn't it? And there's been a lot of work we've done on social media. We did a webinar, didn't we, recently, just yep. to sort of whet people's appetite. But there's a lot of interest, isn't there, from healthcare professionals? There's a huge amount of interest. And the questions are really insightful into where they feel the gaps are in their knowledge. And you can tell that a lot of the questions are coming from that nervousness on Mm. prescribing HRT and still that fear that it's related to creating more harm than benefit. And we know that that's in the front of their minds when they're thinking about, right, I need to 
I need to prescribe HRT, but what's going to be the safest way of doing it? Whereas, you know, what we're looking at for research and education is to provide some practical treatment pathways. You know, Alison, who worked with you on the Confidence in the Menopause course, supported us with in putting these treatment pathways together where you can have a practical and sensible approach to how you then treat women but equally we've answered a lot of the questions that they raise whether it's a family history of breast cancer or endometriosis you know so what I think it's about providing them with the knowledge around the areas that they feel most nervous about because I think it's very similar to a role my role before was looking at atrial fibrillation and the prescribing of the new novel oral anticoagulation drugs. And the, the main reason why they weren't being adopted was literally confidence in prescribing and understanding because they felt that there was a massive risk of bleeds. And actually, it was unfounded. So it's those things that you go, I can understand. It's the same you know, behavioural piece, which is why I think the work with NHS England and the behavioural team is really important because they do understand how to make some of that change happen at a system level. And the NHS is a beast in order to change that practice because of it's not a whale, it's a shoal of fish, as we used to say. <laughs> yeah, and it's very interesting because a lot of the work we're doing is really trying to help the NHS. We're really trying to help as many healthcare professionals as possible and for women to access their treatment in the NHS. So with the education programme, it's a very dynamic programme. We're adding to it, we're changing it, we're responding to the needs of healthcare professionals. And I think that's really important because I've certainly been to so many courses, and I'm sure you probably have over the years, where you sit there and you think, actually, I've only learned one thing today. And I've yeah. had to put my children into it after school. I've had to get a train. I've had to get up early. I've had to... And actually, you want something that's really responsive and what you want. And we're all different into our learning needs. So, yeah. so we're shaping it all the time. And from it, we've also decided, haven't we, to set up a menopause society, Yes, which you're again leading. You haven't got much spare time, I know. <laughs> <laughs> You're sort of heading up the society because, uh, well, tell us a bit about what the society is, if that's okay. So the society is a multidisciplinary team of healthcare professionals looking at how we can improve women's health focused on the perimenopause and the menopause and looking at the impact of hormones in disease prevention and the maintenance of future health. The role of the society will be a subscription model where people can become associates and from that we'll provide monthly webinars, podcasts, obviously not to rival this one, but no. <laughs> to provide a different a different perspective from other healthcare professionals on the perimenopause and the menopause and practical tools and techniques in order to sort of help with their own management of women going through the perimenopause and the menopause, but looking at how we can almost catalyse research and education in this space across the globe. So it will be focused internationally. And we've got some fantastic people on our advisory board from all different backgrounds to really help shape it, to make sure that what we're not doing is missing out any particular area of medicine, because we're keen to make sure that we respond to the whole person and that any aspect can be sort of investigated and we identify sort of subject matter experts that can really work with us to shape the content and any future research and education that we may have. So I'm really excited about the launch in January and I can't wait to sort of look at what conversations that sparks because I think that 
diversity of conversation and bringing multidisciplinary teams together with real different perspectives and experiences can really spark innovation and who knows what will happen but I'm really excited by it. Oh I love it when you're excited. Yes. (laughs) Yeah and it's it's a very different society because we're involving as many people from as many different specialties as possible like you say people across the globe as well and also we're making it very cheap as well. We are. I drive people mad because there's no point having a very beautiful society that's very expensive that no one can afford. Mm -hmm. And I really want all healthcare professionals, regardless of their income, if they're part-time or they're newly qualified, they're nurses, they're pharmacists, whoever, to join, or pelvic floor physios. Actually, it doesn't matter. I don't care who joins it, to be honest. I think it's really important. And so we're just developing the the website is nhmenopausesociety.org. And again, we're going to shape it. We're going to change it. We're not rigid. We're nope. um, very fluid in what we do. But there's some very exciting times ahead. So I hope, Lucy, maybe I can invite you back in a year's time and you can tell us how it's gone. Absolutely. But I'm very <laughs> publicly very grateful. And I'm very actually pleased that we met in the first place. Yeah. Because these things, I always think, happen for a reason. But it's been incredible watching and working with you and seeing how things have just escalated over the last few months. So but before we finish, obviously I asked for three take-home tips, but I'm actually going to ask for one for women and two for healthcare professionals, because we do have a lot of healthcare professionals listening to this podcast. So I thought it'd be useful to ask for one tip. So how women might be listening to this or, or men and thinking, well, how can myself or my partner or friend get access? It's all very well you talk about education. So how can some patients, if you like, yep. advise their healthcare professional how to get the training. And then two tips for healthcare professionals, how can they get involved? How can they get trained or how can they join or what are the reasons for joining the society? So if okay. that's okay. So for women, I would say never assume that it's just one thing and always do a bit of reading for yourself to sort of unpick what's going on and make some time for yourself. So I know it's a shameless plug for the Balance app, but for me, it has all of the information and it really takes you to the point where you understand what's happening in order to get a diagnosis or at least the appropriate support, because I think it helps you join the dots. And on the balance-menopause.com website, there's a link for healthcare professionals. So there's a link there to the education programme, isn't there? Correct. Which they can share with their healthcare professional. And I'd say for a healthcare professional, it's about understanding where the treatment pathway can be supported with the Balance app, because again, it's about that two-way conversation and providing information for women to then allow them to have the right information to make a choice for themselves on what the best next steps are. I would say for healthcare professionals, connect with others outside of your specialty, because I think that's the best way to really expand your thinking in this space. And I know we covered it earlier, but we kind of said, could it be hormones? And it's that, you know, famous take that song instead of could it be magic it's could it be hormones and hopefully that will be sticking in people's head now (laughs) to kind of think about it because it really could be and I think it's very underestimated in a lot of specialties so I just think it's about having that reflection about periods and hormones. Very good excellent so there's a lot of work that needs to be done but we've made a start my father actually always used to say the hardest part of any job is starting it so We've done that bit. So maybe we've done the whole bit. I think we have. Yes. (laughs) 
it's the, it's so, the next bit now which is going to be even much more fun i hope so so thanks ever so much lucy and thanks for joining me today and giving up some of your valuable time thanks for bringing me on for more information about the perimenopause and menopause please visit my website balance-menopause.com or you can download the free Balance app, which is available to download from the App Store or from Google Play.